0: It's good to see you this morning. It's good to worship with you this morning. Thank you, Barry for, and team for leading us in worship. Um, I said this before and I say this every Sunday and I will continue saying this every Sunday that I love to worship with you on a Sunday morning. There is something about being together with a church of God, being together with a body of God. And I cannot wait for us to worship together in our new and improved auditorium downstairs. It's almost coming, I know we say this every week, some excitement for our new auditorium. Um, the builders told us it would take two weeks ago, like, I mean, two weeks total, the project, we should know in Portugal, that means t- 10 weeks. Um, hopefully, I don't know, we say this every Sunday, I feel like I'm lying to you, but it's only because they're lying to us. <laughs> Next Sunday, hopefully, We will be downstairs, and and I'm really looking forward to it. And the whole point of the renovations downstairs is so that we could isolate the sound in the room. Um, If you've been with us before, we moved to this location in 2019, and we said, oh, we'll worry about that later. But the sound downstairs is quite echoey, and so you'd be in worship or a preacher, and you can't really hear the the mute the instruments clearly and the voices clearly and so we decided it was a costly project that we've been saving up for and we decided no we're gonna move forward with it we're gonna isolate all the walls so that The sound is crispy clear because there's nothing so sad as having great musicians and great instruments and then the sound just falls so short. The sound is just bouncing off all the walls and we had sound technicians come from Riverside Qashqai on one worship night and they said, well, there's only so much we can do with these circumstances. And so they tried to make the sound nice but the walls, the sound is bouncing everywhere and so they said, you really should go ahead and renovate and really fix this up and so I'm really looking forward to it hopefully next week the hope is that after these renovations our music will sound amazing and our our worship will be so much more beautiful and pleasing to the ears of God actually God isn't that bothered (laughs) actually I don't think God could care less about the sound bouncing off the walls Uh, God will take our Voices and God will take our instruments and God will take our worship. However it comes as long as it's true I've been in places around the world and you guys have been in places around the world where there's no Amplifiers, there's no violins. There's no fancy instruments There's just voices and actually I've been in places where the guitar is horribly out of tune But people just don't seem to notice because their heart is so in it and God will take that worship Because that is what God is interested in. Because for God, worship is so much more than a set list of three songs before the sermon and one song after. For God, worship is so much more than the music that we play in a room with four walls, whether it's isolated or not isolated. For God, worship is so much more than a moment. For Him, worship is everything. Everything, think about it, everything that you do. For God, everything. Is worship it is so much more than a moment for God our worship is a full life response to his love and his mercy and his goodness in your life one day Jesus was having a conversation with this woman and this is what he tells her yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks in spirit and in truth. See, if we turn back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter one, you had a group of people that were worshiping God. Like they were going to church on Sunday, if you put it that way, essentially. (laughs) They were giving their tithe, they were giving offerings to God, they were singing to Him, and this is what God says to them. He said that their worship was unacceptable. He was quite straightforward. He says, stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offering disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they are sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. That's hard. That's pretty straightforward. And so all this makes me question, well, what is true worship? And do I find myself in Isaiah chapter one, or do I find myself here where Jesus says in John chapter four, am I the true worshiper that the father seeks? Is my worship and the way that I am living my life and the way that I am singing these songs on a Sunday morning, is it touching the heart of God? As Christmas approaches, Christmas card season approaches. I asked this last week, but or two weeks ago, who's put up Christmas decorations now? Still like so few of you. Well, stand strong, stand strong. We'll catch up with you eventually. <laughs> like two people. You're my, my Christmas decorations are not up. Um, but Christmas card season is upon us and I love a good Christmas card. I know that it's not as, as, in now. We don't really do Christmas cards as much as we used to, especially in Portugal. If you're coming from the UK, for example, Portugal is just sad in its supply of Christmas cards and cards in general. Uh, but I grew up with receiving Christmas cards, especially in the church. My parents are pastors, and so we'd get lots of cards. And my parents would put like a string from one side of the living room to the other, and would hang all the Christmas cards, or they'd display it on the furniture. And so I grew up loving a good card. And actually, I like cards on Christmas, on Birthdays, on Valentine's, on any random occasion. And actually the more random the occasion, the more I like the card. But I have to tell you this morning that there are cards that I love and I will keep them forever. Yesterday in preparation for this message, I went downstairs to the storage area, the place we never go. (laughs) But I went there and I found this box and then I just spent like an hour looking through this box. because there's cards in there. And I started looking through the cards that I will keep forever because they are so meaningful to me. And then there are cards that, to be honest with you, I will receive them politely, say thank you. The person will go and I will put them in the bin. And that's just the way it is because it's gonna be taking up space in my house and there's only so many cards that you can keep. But I wanna I want to show you what I mean. All right, so this is what I found yesterday here. Leave that there. This is a card that I found, and actually it's surprising that it didn't go to the bin. It was in the box for some reason. Um, But it's a nice, here you go, right? It's a nice store bought card with a nice design on it. I don't know if you guys can all see it, like a cocktail design, happy birthday. Um, Store written words, like have a very special day, Gabby. That's nice. Uh, Thick paper. Pretty good quality, must have cost them something, I don't know. And well, the person thought of me enough to give it, right? The person, look, they even took half a second to write a sentence there at the end, have a lovely birthday. Don't look at who signed it, hopefully nobody in here. (laughs) But then, that's thoughtful. Then here's another card I received that was in the box. And it's not even a card. It's a scrunchy piece of paper. The person maybe couldn't afford it or couldn't find a card. But I know that in this paper, and I, this is in my box, the person took some time to write exactly what I mean to them and to try to express it in whatever space they could, the only pencil they could find. And they wrote what I mean in their lives. And, and this touched my heart because there are words of gratitude, words of encouragement, where they thought of what I mean to them and they've done their best to express it. Now I want to ask you, which one do you think is more meaningful? Which one do you think will go back to the box and which one will not? (laughs) You see, I think that some of us are worshiping with a store-bought card. We pay the cashier and the writing is already there. We just sign our name at the bottom and there you go, God. Meanwhile, if that is our worship, then I want to tell you this morning that God wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want it. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many will come to him one day and they will say, Well, Jesus, we, sorry, this is, they'll say we perform miracles, we prophesy. We, we went to church on Sunday, we, we drove out demons, we went through the motions, we checked the boxes. And I wrote my name at the bottom of the card. I read the, the, the s- lyrics on the screen and then I just, I signed my name and God. And he will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Jesus wants the handwritten letter where maybe you couldn't even find or afford the store-bought card. But you poured your heart out to him on a piece of paper that you could find with all of your bad grammar, with all of your misspellings, with all of your questionable handwriting, where you started writing with a, with a black pen and halfway through the card, it runs out and you have to change to blue. I hate when that happens, but God wants that card because it's yours and because it's true. He wants that worship, the one where you bring your whole life to him imperfect as you are but you tell him how much he means to you. When you come to church and you don't just sing the words on the screen and write your name at the bottom but you really pour out what he means to you. You really express all that he has done in your life because he is so worthy. Your worship is not a Sunday event it is a lifelong response. Maybe it doesn't look that pretty to other people Maybe this doesn't look that pretty to you, but it means so much to the heart of God because it's true. We're going to look to chapter 7 of Luke this morning, where we find a woman that responds to Jesus in a way that should teach us and inspire us. And I'm going to ask Viv,
1: will you read
0: the scripture for us this morning?
1: and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is and that, and that, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me teacher, he said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owned him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgi- forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thanks, Phil.
0: So the scene is set. Simon, he's a Pharisee, a religious leader, and he invites Jesus to come over to his house for dinner. And we understand through scripture that Simon wasn't inviting Jesus over for dinner because he loved him or he admired him. He wasn't inviting Jesus over to dinner because he longed to spend some quality time with him. No, Simon was there to evaluate Jesus. We see in scripture that Simon didn't offer Jesus the basic courtesies of those times. Jesus walks in to his house and he doesn't greet him with a kiss, as we do here in Portugal. He doesn't offer him water to wash his feet that would have been dirty from walking around. He doesn't pour perfume on his head as was custom in that time. No, Simon is there to evaluate Jesus, to, to consider his words. He was filled with skepticism and self-righteousness. And so as they're reclining at this table, we understand that all of a sudden as they're talking and he's looking at Jesus and, and trying to analyze the things that Jesus is saying, that all of a sudden in walks a woman that had lived a sinful life. Now the fact that Luke describes her this way tells us that that she had messed up big time and that because of it, she had a pretty bad reputation. Like you know the things that you've done that nobody else knows about? The things that you've done that you hope nobody else ever knows about? Well, everybody knew about this woman. Everybody knew what she had done. We don't really know exactly what the sin was. It was probably of a sexual nature. But what we do know is that she was completely exposed. And what we understand by the the context is that this isn't the first time she sees Jesus. This isn't the first time she encounters him. We understand that probably she had heard Jesus preach before about repentance and forgiveness of sins. She'd maybe heard him on the Sermon on the Mount, or, 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 heard that he dines and he hangs out with tax collectors and people who are corrupt and sinners. She'd maybe heard him say that that he has come for those that are sick and not for the healthy. And something that had died a long time ago in her, this hope that it was far, far gone, as people thought she was a lost cause. And there's no, there's no way for this woman. They'd shunned her. They rejected her. And as she hears the words of Jesus, something began to reignite and her this hope that maybe I can be forgiven and so she hears that Jesus is at Simon's house and a place that she would not have been welcome this is not a place that people would have wanted her to be they knew who she was and yet she hears no Jesus is going to be at Simon's house I don't I don't care I just need to be where he is and we know that she came prepared because she came with a jar of perfume and maybe she had a whole speech ready. I can imagine her just just preparing what she's going to say if she meets Jesus. Well, what am I going to say to him? To tell him just how much Jesus means to her and how much she wants what he is offering. This mercy and this goodness and this righteousness, this forgiveness of sins. And so she comes to the Pharisee's house. And in verse 38 as she draws close to Jesus, ready to to do what she's come for, ready to say what she's prepared, the Bible says that she loses all of her words and she just starts weeping. She just starts crying. Have you ever met someone that you admire so much, like a celebrity or just someone who's had a really big impact in your life where where you're standing all of a sudden in their presence and you don't really know what to say because of how much they represent in your life. Well, this woman, she finds herself in the presence of her savior. And her only response to the magnitude of God's love for her is to cry. And the tears were so many that she begins to wash his feet that were probably still dirty from the outside. And she just wants to kiss him. And and she lets down her hair and she starts to dry his feet. And next thing she pours this expensive perfume and anoints his feet. And Jesus says, her sins have been forgiven. This woman who had lived a sinful life, messed up time and time again. Her sins have been forgiven. Now this is important. Jesus says, her sins have been forgiven not because of what she'd done, not because of her public demonstration of love. That didn't cause Jesus to forgive her. Her love was merely displaying the forgiveness that had already taken place. This is her response to the forgiveness that Jesus had already offered and she had already accepted. Because God loves us, it produces love in us. Because God forgives us, because God is merciful towards us, it produces this response of love and surrender to him. Meanwhile, the word says that as she worshipped, I imagine different scholars say different things, but I imagine that in this moment when she walks in, now this, at this time, it must have been a courtyard of some sort. It wouldn't have been uh, completely uh, outrageous that people would have walked into that courtyard. There was probably onlookers wanting to know what are the religious leaders talking about? What is the rabbi Jesus talking about? But what was outrageous is who this woman was, that she would come a- 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 into this place where she wasn't welcome. And I imagine that everybody just stopped when she walked in. The picture that I have is that as she begins to worship Jesus and and starts to cry before him, that whatever conversation was going on just stops. And there's silence as people are watching this scene. And the Bible says that Simon is thinking to himself. Well, clearly Jesus isn't a prophet. Clearly, he isn't who he says he is because if he was a prophet, he would know who she is and what she's done, and he would have nothing to do with her. But Jesus, being more than a prophet, being fully man and fully God himself, he not only knows what Simon is thinking about, but he responds with a parable. A parable about two men with debts that they could not pay. One had a bigger debt than the other, but the moneylender forgives them both. jesus says to simon simon who do you think will love him more jesus was giving simon a lesson on grace something that he had not understood and that i think so many of us have not fully understood yet either simon The guy who was, Jesus turns to Simon, the guy who was criticizing Jesus for not seeing this woman, for not knowing who she is, and and Jesus turns to him and says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her love, her repentance, her devotion? Because that's what I see. In his book, Grip of Grace, Max Lucado says this, Suppose that God simplified matters and reduced the Bible to one command. Thou must jump so high in the air that you touch the moon. Like no need to love your neighbor or pray or follow Jesus. Just touch the moon by virtue of a jump and you'll be saved. We would never make it. Maybe some can jump this high higher than this bench. Maybe some can jump as high as Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't know if you've seen just the photos of how much higher he can jump when he's scoring a goal. Maybe some can jump as high as an Olympian athlete. Maybe you, me being very competitive, I will admit that maybe you can jump higher than me in this place this morning. But it's hardly a reason to boast if the moon is the goal. God has not commanded us to touch the moon, but he might as well have. He said in Matthew chapter 5, you must be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. None of us can meet the standard. We all fall so short. And yet we stand around judging each other. And Simon is looking at this woman criticizing how low her jump was without understanding and ignoring the fact of how ridiculously far he was from the standard himself. We are ridiculously far from God's standard and it is impossible to reach it on our own. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. From a young age, we rebel against God and by sinning we hurt ourselves and we hurt each other. Look around our world, you don't have to look very far to see the damage that our pride causes, the damage that our selfishness causes. You see around and you see a broken world, a broken families, broken work environments, broken hearts, people who have been so hurt by our sin. Ephesians 4.18 says that we are darkened in our understanding and our hearts are like stone. According to 2nd Corinthians chapter 4, we can't even see Christ because of the depth of our spiritual blindness. It says in 2nd Corinthians, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. But we don't like this gospel. We don't like this gospel that confronts us with our sin. And confronts us with how messed up we are. And confronts us with our mistakes and our brokenness and how we disobey and how we fail time and time again. Because we live in a land of self-improvement. We live in a land where, no, surely I'm not that bad. And, And there must be some steps I can take to make myself better. I can become a better me and I can live my best life now. David Platt, he's the author of a book I highly recommend called Radical. If you have notes, take out your notes, take out your phones, Radical by David Platt. But he explains how we have distorted the gospel and reduced it to a simple formula where God neatly fits into our three-step plan. We say, well, my life is not going right, but God loves me and, and he has a plan to fix it and I simply need to follow these certain steps and think certain things and check off certain boxes, write my name at the bottom of a card and then I'll be good. You see, we love to exalt self-sufficiency and self-esteem and self-confidence. The modern-day gospel says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. Say the right prayer and come to the front. Raise your hand at the right time. Say the right words. Go to church enough. No sex before marriage. No lying. No cheating. Do your best and you'll be okay. The biblical gospel says, you are an enemy of God. You are dead in your sin. You are so below the standard. It's so bad that you can't even see you're dead, much less bring yourself to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. We spend our time comparing ourselves to others and elevating our own moral high ground. Well, I'm not that bad as that person. I'm not a thief, I'm not sleeping around, I don't have addictions, but what we fail to understand is that people are not the standard. That person you keep comparing yourself to, the Hitlers and Mussolinis of the world that you are not, they are not the standard. Even the greatest person in your life that you just think they're such a cool, good person, they are not the standard. God is the standard. And you say, well Gabby, I'm not God, I'm not perfect. That's precisely the point. And he he is perfect. And he hates evil. He hates sin because he is perfectly holy and sinless. See, many just see God as this loving father. That he's a good, good father, and, and he can't really be that angry at sin. How angry can how angry can he be at our evil? But the Bible describes his anger towards sin and sinners as wrath. The Bible says that he is a loving father, but he is a righteous judge. And it describes his anger as wrath, but the problem is that we tend to confuse God's wrath with human wrath, and the two have very little in common. Human anger is typically self-driven and we're prone to explosions of temper. And, and when I'm angry, I become aggressive and violent. And I'm usually, I get angry because I've been overlooked or neglected or cheated somehow. But God doesn't get angry because he doesn't get his way. He gets angry because disobedience always results in self-destruction. And what kind of father would sit by and watch their child hurt themselves and hurt others around them. See, God doesn't find adultery entertaining. God doesn't tune into our lives like we're a Hollywood movie or the latest Netflix show where, where he thinks, oh, look, this one cheated on that one, huh? This is nice, I'm gonna rate it five stars. God doesn't find that entertaining. He doesn't laugh at the white lies that we tell that only escalate into deception and shame and guilt. He doesn't flick past the news of rape and murder and racism and discrimination and go, oh well, humans being humans. God is rightfully angry because he is holy. The Bible says in Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. You and I cannot reach the moon. We have all missed the standard and it would be ridiculous of me to judge you. There is nothing that you can do to come to him. We cannot manufacture salvation. We can't program it. We can't produce it. We can't even initiate it. No man who is a slave can set himself free. No woman who is blind can give herself sight. No person who is dead can bring themselves back to life. And this is where we start to find the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. The true gospel confronts us with the hopelessness of our sin. And until we come to this realization of how hopeless I am and how far from the standard I am, we will never understand the good news. A few years ago, Reuben and I, we went to South Africa this was our baby moon. We have two kids and JD is three now. And so this would have been three years ago. And uh, we decided to go to South Africa on our last big trip before she came. And we were there and we decided to go walk slash hike on Table Mountain. Who's been to Table Mountain before? You've seen pictures, A few of you, yes. And so we decided, I'm pregnant, I was four to five months pregnant at this time, and so we decided we're not gonna go up, we're just gonna go around and see, the views are absolutely stunning. And so as we were walking, uh, we saw this path that went up and we didn't have much internet connection where we were and so we just kinda talked it over and decided, let's do this, I mean, how hard can it be? Let's go up. And so we started going up, uh, but little did we know that this was one of the hardest hiking paths to reach the top of Table Mountain. We quickly came to realize that in the experience of it. (laughs) But next thing, we were nearly bouldering our way up. Like we weren't just walking, we were climbing. it's a lot of core strength, you know, when you're pregnant, not the best. And so we are climbing our way up, and next thing, it's getting windier and windier. Two hours have passed. It's getting less and less safe, not just because I'm pregnant, but because my dear husband is very afraid of heights. (laughs) (laughs) and so we are coming to a point where there's just like it's just a cliff like there's no safeguarding there's no net there's nothing and it's windy and he's holding on to everything that he can for dear life and we probably still had another two hours to go and we had to come to this moment of evaluating our circumstance and I'm just gonna show I asked permission to show you this photo (laughs) See, I felt kind of safe because this was a place where you actually had a place to walk. But Ruben now cannot get up because he just needs to hold on to anything that provides him some safety. And so we had to come to this executive decision that we were not going to make it to the top that day. And I sit with people that hold all kinds of faiths and religions and backgrounds. And it's as if we are standing at the bottom of Mount Everest. Never mind Table Mountain. That's just, we are sitting at the bottom of Mount Everest with no training, no equipment, filled with limitations and fears and and things that bind us. And they tell me how in the end, well, all religions and all faiths, we're really just all climbing this mountain to get to the top where God is. And and Gabby, we're not that different, you and I. Hinduism and Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism, we're all just climbing up to this mountain. We're just taking different routes to get there. But I'm looking at them thinking, and looking at myself, and looking at the mountain, and thinking if we're honest, we're never gonna make it. Millions of people live their lives climbing only to reach the end and say, well, I hope I've done enough. With no assurance, no freedom, no mercy, no goodness, no forgiveness. And so what if I told you that God knew we wouldn't make it? He knew we were sinless and hopeless. And what if I told you that he came down to where you are? Wouldn't that be great news? That you don't have to earn your forgiveness and your reconciliation to God, but that he knew you wouldn't make it and so he came down the mountain to where you are so that you can be reconciled to the one who loves you with the magnitude of love that you will never understand. Wouldn't that be good news? You see, God did not lower his standard. He didn't say, oh, okay, well, you can sin a little. Maybe I'll sin a little god did not lower his standard rather he appeased his wrath by paying the price of our sin himself this is the true gospel that a just and a loving creator of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son god in the flesh born of a virgin with no sin, living a life that you and I could never live to bear God's wrath against sin on the cross and and to show his power over sin in the resurrection that all who trust in him may be reconciled to God, our father and creator. When Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, if you go back to the gospels and you read the story of our salvation, we read that he was in the garden and he's so distressed He's so disturbed that he starts to sweat blood. And he says to the father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. See, the cup wasn't just a reference to the wooden cross and some nails that would be pierced on him. The cup was a reference to God's divine judgment. The cup was a reference to God's holy wrath, his hate for the sin that you and I commit, the mistakes, the hurt that you and I bring on each other in the heart of God. That he would take all of that and pour it onto Jesus for our freedom. Colossians 1.22 says, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is good news. That no matter what you have done and no matter how broken you are, you can stand before God holy and blameless, not because anything you do, not because you climbed so well that you got there before everybody else, but because he came. For the sins you have committed and the sins you are yet to commit and so what is the right response to this this woman of luke chapter 7 she comes into the presence of jesus and she can't do anything but cry and pour herself out no matter what other people thought of her she has no other response but to just pour her heart out to jesus and cry because she's understood the depth of the grace and the mercy of God. She's understood that the primary reward of the gospel is God himself. In 1 Peter 3 18, we read, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Christ suffered to bring us to the presence of God. Your justification is not the end goal. Your sanctification, like you becoming more Christ-like and becoming a better person, that is not the end goal. Heaven is not the end goal. These are all just means to to an end. The end goal is God himself. The end goal is that you would get to know him that you would get to see Him, that you would get to enter into His presence holy and blameless, that you would get to have relationship with Him, that you would get to love Him and be loved by Him. That is the end goal, and it is incredible news. God has made a way where there was no way. That I was blind and now I see, that I was dead, but now I am alive. He has forgiven me, and He has set me free. What is the appropriate response to this amazing God? It is everything. It is everything. It is your repentance, not just your remorse, not just your, oh, I wish I didn't do that. It is your repentance. God, I turned from the way that I was living. I'm sorry that I messed up again, but God, I come to you, not because there's anything that I can do, but because I want to accept what you have done for me, and I give you my gratitude. I give you my all. God, it is my everything. And I, I want to see a church that worships this way. That when we have the opportunity to sing to God, we don't take that for granted. We don't just give God this store-bought card. I don't want a church that looks good, but means nothing. That your life would look good to other people. You have the right career and your family looks good from the outside. But really inside, God says, I want nothing to do with you because it means nothing. I don't want this. I want a life that is so surrendered to God that understands time and time again, that is amazed time and time again. And and I'm like Paul that says, you know, the the more I try not to sin, the more I sin. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I don't, the things I do want to do, I don't. But that each time, each day, his mercies are new. And so God, take it all. Do whatever you want to do. I want to obey you. I want to have the job that you want for me. I want to have the family that you want for me. I want to follow you in the timings that you have for me. I don't want to force my own way. I don't want to live life and be the king of my life because, God, I'm never going to make it to your standard. But I know that you came for me. So I want to invite the worship team this morning to come back up. This is the gospel. This is what brings us here. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what we're celebrating. This is the true reason for what we are about to celebrate as a church, as nations, as the world, so many millions across the world. What does your worship look like? What does your life look like? What do your decisions look like? May we worship him in spirit and in truth because of what he has done for us. That is the only appropriate response. So I want to invite you to stand with me. God, we want to come to you broken as we are. Knowing that we are sinful and knowing that what we have to bring you is so insufficient. But God, we give it all. We give you our worship. We give you our lives. Because you gave it all for us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will reveal this into our souls. That we will understand the depth of your love like never before that we will understand the depth of your mercy and your grace like never before. We are undeserving and yet you love us. And yet you welcome us with open arms. You have forgiven our debts and God, we want to love you for it. Will our worship this morning and always be pleasing to your heart? May it be true.